Welcome back. It's, uh, it's Hamilton time, but, um, but there'll be a Madisonian uh, prelude, since we didn't, um, you didn't get to ask questions, and there may be some give and take across the, uh, 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 the panel. You, uh, Lance may have some, some comments or rejoinders or whatnot to, to his two commentators, but uh, I plan to end the to end the Madison period and then bring up the uh, uh, the Hamiltonian uh, forces uh, no later than uh, than a quarter of two. Let me say for the for the the paper writers and discussants and and the out of town invited guests. Uh, I think you all know that there is an informal dinner. That's um, in a building called Bobst Hall, which is on Prospect Street here on the other side. It's number 83, and it's 7 p.m. It's about, uh, it, would be a, a, it would be about a two-block walk from where we are right now. Um, and uh, at the end of the uh, summary and, and uh, overall discussion section, uh, various people will be going out to the uh, uh, site that was George Washington's headquarters, uh, the, the Rockingham uh, estate, in, in, um, uh, which has now been moved in the town of, of Kingston. So anybody who wants to go along on that is welcome uh, to do that. Uh, questions and comments on, the, uh, 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 on, on Madison. The floor is open for that. Uh, yes, uh, John Londrigan. Well, I, I think we have to start by, by simply recognizing that he was never an advocate of a strong national government in the sense that strong national government might, you know, might mean to us or even would have meant to Alexander Hamilton. He's an advocate of an effective, well-constructed, partly national and partly federal republic. Uh, well, you know, what, what I'm trying to do with this, really, is, is to correct what seems to me a misunderstanding. Let me see if I can put this in, in kind of a phrase. What I'm trying to say is that James Madison was not a liberal who was compelled to operate in a Republican environment. Or to, to change that langu language a little, he's not a... Uh, conservative, unable to avoid democracy. He's a committed, revolutionary, liberal Republican. He's just as committed to popular self-governance, uh, an entirely elective government genuinely responsive to the people, uh, as he is to the protection of private rights. So I think where we've got Madison really most wrong uh, is you know, in that image of the uh, of the 1780s, it sees him as one of a group of uh, you know centralizing nationalists through that period. No. So your assumption is being challenged. Your premise. Yeah. Exactly. 
there. I'm being asked to do this? Okay. Well. <laughs> I mean, one of the things that's normally pointed out in, in regard to this is that they reacted against these democratic impulses, which we talked about, and that is the particular critique of dem uh, democracy within the states, by, elect by developing a scheme for huge or expanded electoral districts that would elevate certain kinds of, uh, of people into office who otherwise normally wouldn't uh, have, have achieved office, that that was part of their conservative reaction to this. I think there's an element of that in Madison. I definitely think that he did, he very much wanted there to be much more effective, different kind of leaders and rulers uh, than had taken, than, than had been in place in the state governments during this time period. This is the essential thesis of Gordon Wood and, and and he's shown that, there's a, that, that this is indeed uh, an important aspect of the framing of the Constitution. For Madison, it seems to me that that has been a bit overemphasized. I very much think that Madison did favor disinterested, impartial, enlightened statesmen. But one of the things that Lance points out is that at the Constitutional Convention, Madison f uh, fought to double the number of representatives twice. He, he, he uh, uh, favored motions to double the number of representatives who would have uh, governed in the first Congress from 65 to 130. And so um, he's, he's always trying to strike a balance. And I think that Lance and I are very much at one in, in our interpretations about this. He, he's, he, he sees all these democratic problems, but he doesn't throw out democracy with democratic problems. He tries to affect a different balance uh, that has been previously taken, uh, taken place. So he gets these particularly enlightened statesmen in, in, into the federal system then at that point, he believes that the government's going to operate much more efficiently, but he wants them to be restrained. He clearly wants them to be an accountable elite, not simply a, uh, uh, he doesn't take their impartiality for granted. He, 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 certain mechanisms create the election of certain kinds of people, and they are to be accountable for this. Let me say if anybody, any of the authoritative figures in the audience feel that they have an answer to her, or, or something that's responsive to the question, a question like that, and want to say something. I, I think we can increasingly think of this as a as a collective discussion. John. Well, John, he's been doing this to me ever since I was a student. Right? <laughs> uh, 
I have tried in, in writings on the Constitutional Convention to suggest the Virginia plan says something, and I probably won't recall the exact words, but it says basically that this new government will be vested with the powers currently vested, you know, by the Articles of Confederation and such other powers as the states are individually incompetent to handle. That's just a, a beginning. You know, it's the point at which the Virginians want to start talking about what those powers are actually going to be. And there's a big, what happens in the convention is that once that's presented, they're, they're not very far into the work before uh, Pinckney and some others say, well, hey, wait a minute, before we go any farther, we're going to have to decide what the uh, government will be able to do. Madison comes in at that point, and he, and he, what he basically does is to, to, to say, look, we've got to settle the structural questions first, and then we'll get into this matter of, of, of enumeration. And he actually even says that he came in preferring an enumeration and that that, that was still his preference. But he says, hey, I'm you know, willing to go as far as is necessary to... Uh, uh, you know, to create a government that will be effective. So it's, I, I guess a short answer to that is that it really is impossible to say with absolute certainty, you know, what uh, Madison would or would not have been willing to accept at that particular moment. Well, I always agree with you, and particularly on <laughs> yeah, particularly on those points. Uh, and, you know, and people do need to keep in mind all the time just how narrow the victory for the Constitution was. It, it would have taken very damn little <laughs> to tip things the other way. The famous aphorism is that uh, the famous aphorism about, about history of uh, historian uh, Wedgwood is that uh, uh, we we write history backwards and forget that it's lived forward. They didn't know what we know now, so it obviously applies to this period as well as many others. That uh, much was uncertain and ambiguous. So one or two more, and then the rest can be reserved for, um, uh, for um, uh, the final session. We're not seeing any hands. Uh, let's have a changing of the guard to the Madisonian, to the, to the Hamiltonian. Here we are in the state where um, Mr. Hamilton met his end.
And the paper giver uh, has written a very well-received book called Affairs of Honor, which is on how people from this era dispatched one another from time to time. And um, so Joanne Freeman, will, who also is the editor of the uh, uh, wonderful Library America, of America volume of Hamilton's writings, which has a very rich chronology uh, in back, will give the presentation on, uh, on Hamilton. Um, commentators are, uh, uh, are Pauline Meyer and uh, Herbert Sloan, and um, I'll leave those bios to your program so that we can proceed. Well, um, when Lance Banning stood up to talk about Madison, he began by saying that Madison is not the most abused or neglected founder. Well, Hamilton is. <laughs> Both. <laughs> Both abused and neglected. Not that he doesn't deserve some criticism, as we'll see in a few minutes, but he does have a problematic reputation. His political ideas are often distorted, or worse, forgotten. One of the first leading Americans to push for a new and more centralized national government, a dedicated advocate of the proposed Constitution who hammered his way into getting it ratified in New York State, the early national leader who best understood the logistics of running a national government, Hamilton was a profound political thinker, and equally important, a vigorous political actor Yet he's often caricatured as an aristocratic monarchist who disdained Republican governance and despised the masses, sneeringly describing them as a great beast, a remark that he probably never said. Hamilton was never that simple. He did distrust political activism among the masses, but he understood or at least acknowledged the importance of popular participation in government, Always a devotee of order and organization, he thought that the people should vote for their leaders and then move aside. There was a structured constitutional system in place to govern if the people would just let it govern. He consistently tried to enhance the powers and status of the national executive, but not simply to transform him into a monarch. Rather, he saw the American president as an effective force for a unified national vis vision and voice. Regardless of the extent of the president's powers, Hamilton assumed that a leader who was installed and removed from office by popular will was fundamentally Republican. Hamilton may have had grave doubts about the stability and endurance of Republican governance, but he understood that the experiment must run its course. In the meantime, he would invest his energies into the process of governance. Brilliant conceptual thinker that he was, Hamilton was also a brilliant political administrator. He wasn't concerned with ideas alone. He was concerned with implementing them step by step. Throughout his tenure as Secretary of the Treasury, he found practical ways to forge political precedents and push the process of governance towards his ideological goals. Sometimes he was successful. Sometimes he wasn't. And sometimes the very human experience of operating on an untried and shaky political stage got in the way. There were also personal complications inherent in self-consciously founding a nation. Like many of his contemporaries, Hamilton felt an enormous personal commitment to the fate of America's new government. Its failure would mean his failure 
and the collapse of his life's purpose. These two components of Hamilton, his political methods and his personal involvement, are poignantly apparent in his sense of humor. And yes, he did have one. <laughs> Universally, when I say that I'm going to talk, among other things, about Hamilton's sense of humor, um, across the board, everyone says he had one. Uh, and he did. It may not be a good sense of humor, but he did have a sense of humor. Granted, his published papers do not inspire belly laughs. Indeed, a Hamilton scholar who worked quite closely with his papers once declared that Hamilton had no sense of humor, which is an understandable mistake. Most of his writings are argument-driven manifestos crafted with laser beam precision and lawyerly logic with little space for a chuckle. And yet, between the lines, and sometimes in the lines, there is something else. Erratic, energetic, and sometimes ill-judged, there is a distinctly Hamiltonian sense of humor of a piece with his character as a whole. And I should say, um, earlier Drew McCoy was noting sort of ideal characteristics of a leader, um, modesty, diffidence, and self-restraint, none of which Hamilton had. <laughs> he was not a careful man. He took unwise risks. He could be indiscreet. He often said what he thought without much of a filter. He sometimes misjudged his audience, offending not only enemies but friends. He was arrogant, sometimes imperious. He assumed that he was always right and anyone who thought otherwise was a fool. All of these shortcomings are apparent in Hamilton's sense of humor, which often invited as much trouble as laughter. But Hamilton's humor reveals more than his flaws. It also offers insight into his habits of mind and action and the traits and talents that gained him power and prestige. Hamilton was a force to be reckoned with, ambitious, energetic, quick-witted, and quick-tempered, charming when he chose to be, capable of envisioning the big picture without losing track of the smallest detail. He was a brilliant administrator with a vision for the future, lucky enough to be living in a newborn republic lacking shape and precedent. Hamilton would have been energetic and ambitious in any nation, place, and time, but in the early years of the American Republic, he was in his element, a master planner in an unstructured nation. If he sometimes went wide of his mark, doing more damage to himself than his enemies, it was a product of his intense desire to fill this void. Well aware of the magnitude of the task and its political and personal implications, Hamilton's energies and ambitions sometimes got the better of him. When observers described him as giddy or silly, as they sometimes did, they were witnessing Hamilton's overflowing <coughs> excitement at the possibilities of the moment. Now, of course, a world of possibility is also a world of risk, so it should come as no surprise that Hamilton's enthusiasms sometimes pushed too far. Indeed, more than any other major founder, Hamilton has long had a reputation for ill-judged quips. Just look at his alleged behavior during the Constitutional Convention. When fellow delegate Benjamin Franklin proposed to start each session in prayer, Hamilton supposedly declared, there's no need to call in foreign aid. <laughs> On another occasion, when asked why the Constitution had no reference to God, Hamilton supposedly replied, we forgot it. On the perennially charged issue of the link between religion and constitutional governance, Hamilton seems to be a convenient stalking horse, famous enough for the story to have impact, but obscure enough to be an expedient mouthpiece. A third anecdote says as much about George Washington's gravitas as Hamilton's sense of humor. 
Supposedly sometime during the convention, Hamilton offered to wine and dine friend and fellow delegate Governor Morris and 12 of Morris's friends if Morris dared to go up to Washington and slap him on the shoulder and tell him he looked good, glad to see him. You just don't slap George Washington on the shoulder. And Morris did this and won the bet, but he was completely cowed by Washington's glower and he swore he would never attempt to be familiar with George Washington ever again. Now, all of these stories are probably apocryphal, but they contain a nugget of truth. Hamilton did make at least one wager in association with Morris, and indeed, Morris seemed to bring out Hamilton's impish side, because in a letter to Morris, Hamilton appears to have made some kind of irreverent joke about God on a Sunday. And Hamilton did enjoy a good practical joke. When he was Inspector General of the United States Army in 1799, he staged a fake seance as a party trick. And unfortunately, the press got a hold of it, and it raised a bit of a fuss that New York's leaders were trying to raise dead spirits. So clearly, part of the reason that Hamilton attracts this kind of anecdote is because they're in character. In fact, Hamilton's career is littered with unfortunate pronouncements and impulsive one-liners. Ever hungry for fodder to deploy against Hamilton and his legacy, Jefferson repeated two such remarks for decades. We heard one actually earlier convinced that they exposed Hamilton's true politics. On one occasion, at one of these famous Jeffersonian dinners, and I should say, Federalists were always referred to Jefferson's Epicurean artifices. These dinner parties were notorious places where he would just wait for people to drop things in conversation, which he could then grab onto and use. And this is a great example. So at one of these dinners, Jefferson, Hamilton, and Adams were dining at Jefferson's house, and the conversation turned to the British system of governance. And as Jefferson later recalled it, Adams said, purge that constitution of its corruption and give to its popular branch equality of representation, and it would be the most perfect constitution ever devised by the wit of man. At this point, Hamilton paused, Jefferson later wrote dramatically, and said, purge it of its corruption and give to its popular branch equality of representation, and it would become an impracticable government. As it stands at present, with all its supposed defects, it is the most perfect government that ever existed. He's not shy about saying what he thinks. Years later, Jefferson explained the moral of this story. Hamilton was not only a monarchist, but for monarchy bottomed on corruption. At that same dinner party, Hamilton asked about three portraits on Jefferson's walls. And Jefferson responded, they're my trinity of the three greatest men the world has ever produced, very Jeffersonian response, Isaac Newton, Francis Bacon, and John Locke. After yet another dramatic pause, Hamilton corrected him and said, the greatest man that ever lived was Julius Caesar. And of course, Jefferson wrote this down, and he considered this damning evidence of Hamilton's belief in what he called, quote, the need of either force or corruption to govern men. Now, this second anecdote might be an example of Hamilton's unfortunate sense of humor, because he may have been goading Jefferson. He did that on more than one occasion, and actually Aaron Burr liked doing that to Hamilton. What Hamilton did not do on more than one occasion was praise Julius Caesar. Every other mention of him in Hamilton's papers is negative. So if Hamilton was trying to have fun at Jefferson's expense, it was a costly joke. Like so many of Hamilton's comments, it became yet another tin can clattering after his reputation. Ultimately, such unfiltered pronouncements destroyed Hamilton's career. For example, although he had every right to propose a plan of government at the Constitutional Convention, 
His unabashed praise of the monarchic British Constitution, joined with his suggestion that the national executive serve during good behavior, opened him to charges of monarchism that haunted him forever after. And not only did he openly avow such controversial ideas, but he did so in a grandstanding six-hour performance. He wrote two similarly astonishing pamphlets, one confessing to adultery in lurid detail, to escape charges of financial misconduct, the other attacking John Adams, his own party's presidential candidate. Now, Hamilton reasoned his way into publishing both of these pamphlets, but in the end, they were strategic blunders that destroyed his political influence. And as one friend, and this is actually a friend of his, declared after the publication of Hamilton's attack on Adams, Hamilton's character is radically deficient in discretion. Hence, he is considered as an unfit head of the party. His 1804 attack against Aaron Burr was the fatal conclusion to a career of unwise remarks. And as the fictional Burr explains in Gore Vidal's novel, Burr, Hamilton, quote, literally dug his own grave with words. Now, of course, this same aggressive candor was one of the keys to Hamilton's success. Born poor and illegitimate in the West Indies, he inspired supporters to fund his passage to North America with bold performances in writing and in person. The same forceful self-promotion won him his position as Washington's aide-de-camp during the Revolution, established his reputation as a political thinker in the 1780s, put him at the forefront of efforts to draft and ratify a new constitution, elevated him to the office of Secretary of the Treasury, earned a string of victories for his financial plan, fueled his enormously effective political attacks and defenses, and installed him as the leader of the Federalist Party. So if Hamilton was his own worst enemy, he was also his own best friend. Both sides of this equation were apparent when Hamilton made an unfortunate joke in 1792. Riding high after a series of successes as Secretary of the Treasury, his offhand remark spurred an extended controversy, opening him to charges of corruption, fueling press attacks, raising concern in circles as high as the President of the United States, and bringing Hamilton to the brink of a duel. Studying Hamilton in this most human condition, telling a bad joke, offers insight into his manner and method as a politician and reveals some of the many reasons why he was so controversial during his lifetime and beyond. Now, fortunately, all of the political uproar that came about because of this little joke forced Hamilton to explain himself in writing, so we have an account of this incident in his own words. So as he explains it later, walking out of his office one afternoon, he encountered Maryland Representative John Francis Mercer, a particularly aggressive and, in some eyes, obnoxious political opponent. Mercer immediately began to berate Hamilton for failing to reimburse him for some horses killed in battle during the Revolution. If someone else had made the claim, Mercer insisted, Hamilton would have no difficulty paying it. Hamilton rejected Mercer's request out of sheer spite. Quote, I well remember that I felt a momentary embarrassment from this address, Hamilton later explained to Mercer. It appeared to me to impart impeach the partiality of the officers of the Treasury on the ground of some personal opposition to you, which I could not well avoid referring to myself. Publicly insulted before a group of men on a city street, Hamilton was deeply offended. Pausing to consider whether he should respond, as he later put it, gravely or with pleasantry, he opted for the latter, hoping to diffuse Mercer's accusation. So assuming what he called, quote, an unequivocal tone of pleasantry, 
He first joked that Mercer was setting a good precedent because Hamilton himself had lost some horses during the war, and he'd love to be compensated for them. But since veterans could be compensated only for personal services to the United States, Mercer would have to prove that he and his horse were one and the same. It was not Mercer, but the horse who'd done America a great personal service. This did not appease Mercer. And when Mercer continued to press his point, Hamilton replied, quote, in the same spirit with which I had begun, that there's an easy way to settle the matter. If Mercer would vote for Hamilton's bill the next day, quote, we'll make the thing very easy. We'll contrive to get your account settled. Hamilton later recalled that, quote, upon this, a laugh went round the persons present, including Mercer, and we all parted in perfectly good humor. Now, joking about bribery would be unwise for any secretary of the treasury. <laughs> it's an understatement. For Hamilton, this was disastrous for a host of reasons. First was the simple fact that many people were just put off by his often abrasive manner, making them more than willing to misinterpret his joke. Even worse, his personal motives were suspect. He was palpably ambitious. Now, of course, it's his ambition and talents that gained him power and prestige, but this same ambition seemed to make him untrustworthy, particularly in a new nation with an unformed government where an ambitious man could easily seize power. His style of leadership was equally threatening. Bold, energetic, and organized with a passion for military command, Hamilton led his supporters like a general at the head of an army. He sized up the enemy, devised campaign strategies, marshaled his troops, issued orders, and spurred them into battle. It was for good reason that his enemies referred to his followers as a squadron, a corps, or somewhat more fancifully, Hamilton's gladiators. And then there was his financial plan. The first secretary of the treasury in a new national government that seemed threateningly centralized in comparison with what had come before, Hamilton wanted even more centralization. Every prong of his financial plan gave the national government more power. He had the national government assume revolutionary war debts from the individual states, forcing creditors to look to the national government for repayment. He founded a national bank for more efficient and effective deployment of national funds. He fought for broad construction of the Constitution, arguing that the national government could do anything that was necessary and proper to accomplish its goals. In his heart of hearts, he wanted to demote individual states to mere administrative units within an all-powerful national whole. To Hamilton, such policies would encourage the new nation's development, fostering a vigorous, expanding, unified republic that would one day take a place of power on the world stage. But amidst a population terrified of slipping back into monarchy and despotism, Hamilton seemed like danger incarnate. To those who had a different vision for the nation's future, state-centric, agrarian, decentralized, he seemed like the devil himself. As Mercer charged during a 1792 electioneering speech, Hamilton is the most dangerous man in the government. Now, not surprisingly, people who disliked his politics tended to doubt his motives. Some assumed that he was scrabbling for power and influence. Others were convinced that he was financially benefiting himself and his friends. Still more assumed that he catered to the wealthy and powerful, which in many ways he did, in hope of investing their wealth and power in America's shaky new government. Regardless of their accuracy, charges of corruption shadowed Hamilton's every move, particularly charges of congressional corruption. As Jefferson insisted on numerous occasions to anyone who would listen, Hamilton headed, quote, a considerable squadron of congressmen who owned stock in the Bank of the United States, and not surprisingly, Jefferson insisted, they supported every single Treasury measure. 
To Jefferson, Mercer, and their friends and allies, Hamilton had corrupted the legislature. Even worse, as Jefferson was only too happy to point out, Hamilton praised corruption as essential to government. So clearly Hamilton should have thought twice before praising political corruption at Jefferson's dinner table. But in fact, he was entirely serious. Corruption in Hamilton's sense of the term was not financial misconduct, but rather the personal influence and private agreements that bound together the king or executive branch with the commons or Congress. As David Hume wrote in reference to the British government, we may give to this influence what name we please. We may call it by the invidious appellations of corruption and dependence, but some degree of it is inseparable from the very nature of the Constitution and necessary to the preservation of our mixed government. It was Hume that Hamilton paraphrased at Jefferson's dinner table. Corruption, in Hamilton's sense of the word, signified the very basis of efficient governance. Without personal negotiations, the government would come to a grinding halt, its constitutional checks and balances producing a state of perpetual stalemate. But to a population that was hypersensitive to abuses of power and political accountability, such backroom bargains reduced Republican governance to a series of personal deals grounded on the ambitions and desires of individual politicians. To Hamilton, this was precisely the point. In a sense, Jefferson was correct in selecting this anecdote as a window into Hamilton's style of leadership. For in praising the efficiency of corruption, Hamilton said much about his view of the practical business of politics. The corruption of Congress was vital to Hamilton's success as Secretary of the Treasury, indeed important enough that without it, he would have refused the office from the start. Out of the three executive departments, only the Treasury Department had an explicit link with Congress, which Hamilton used to full advantage. His ability to report to Congress gave him a voice and presence in the, ha in the House and the Senate, enabling him to propose policy and further his agenda, and on at least one occasion, he even drafted legislation. Hamilton's connection with Congress was so clearly his primary source of power that beginning in 1791, his enemies tried repeatedly to cut it off. When in 1794, the House, for the first time, did not ask Hamilton for a recommendation on a revenue issue, he could barely suppress his outrage. As one congressman put it, Hamilton appeared cursedly mortified. Joined with his seemingly boundless energy, his brash self-confidence, his administrative skills, and the unswerving centralizing focus of his policies, this ambiguity about his position kept him mired in controversy throughout his term of office. And in the spring of 1792, the spring when Hamilton joked about bribery with John Francis Mercer, Hamilton's string of legislative successes brought this entire issue to the fore. So Hamilton's joke and the consequent uproar reveal more than his poor comic timing. They strike at the very foundation of his political method and style. This is why his joke ultimately had such a great impact. To many people, it hit at the precise crux of the problem, Hamilton's personal link with Congress. Unfortunately for Hamilton, Mercer faced re-election to Congress that fall. Hungry for campaign fodder, he promoted himself as an enemy to Hamiltonian corruption. As he put it during a campaign speech, he was the only man who would dare stand up on the floor of Congress and call in question the conduct of the Secretary of the Treasury. So in essence, Mercer grounded his entire campaign on a series of charges against Hamilton. When Hamilton demanded an explanation from Mercer and informed one of Mercer's Federalist enemies of this demand, Mercer angrily accused Hamilton of twisting his words to tarnish his reputation and defeat his campaign. He could do the same thing in return, Mercer insisted to some friends. For instance, he said, 
He could with perfect truth say that Mr. Hamilton had offered him a sum of money to vote for assumption. When asked if Hamilton had been serious or jesting, Mercer said, I have a right to take it either way. Well, shortly thereafter, Washington heard this tale from his friend David Stewart during a visit to Virginia, and alarmed, Washington asked Stewart for the details, and herein began 10 months of controversy during which Hamilton, Mercer, and Washington collected affidavits about Mercer's pronouncements while newspapers fanned the flames. If Hamilton's joke highlights the key to his legislative success, his response to the subsequent controversy reveals much about his behavior as a public man. Faced with a similar situation, most of his colleagues would show self-restraint. Some, like John Adams, would grumble privately but remain silent publicly. Others, like George Washington, would agonize behind a public silence. Some, like Thomas Jefferson, would defend themselves through indirect means, encouraging their friends, like James Madison, to strike back. But few leading public figures would swagger into the public sphere or directly confront an attacker. This was Hamilton's modus operandi. Sometimes it worked wonderfully. Of all the major founders, Hamilton was unquestionably most effective in the press. Now, of course, his most famous efforts are his Federalist essays, but he conducted a host of other lengthy press campaigns, roughly 20, and wrote countless individual newspaper essays. Most of them share a consistent message, propounding Hamilton's nationalist vision, projecting an image of a vigorous and unified nation, preaching caution against France, and urging close ties with Great Britain, a nation that could nurture American industry in its infancy. He also skillfully deployed the press in his battle against Jefferson and his Republican allies. In 1792, in six months, he wrote 18 accusatory newspaper essays, posing as different people from one to the other. He sometimes was talking to himself in these essays. On September 11th alone, he wrote three essays as different people, and all of them appeared in the Republican National Gazette the next day. But these same essays that were so effective as partisan weapons were problematic as weapons of personal self-defense. Although Hamilton's two ill-judged pamphlets from the late 1790s had political implications and intentions, fundamentally they were personal defenses of Hamilton's character, and in this vein, his bold, hammering tone sounded shrill. Both had the same message. I am an innocent victim of a political stalking by a foul, cruel, and irrational foe. In the Reynolds pamphlet, this message led Hamilton to defend himself beyond the bounds of decency. In his eagerness to prove his innocence of financial misconduct, he proved that he was an adulterer in graphic detail. The Adams pamphlet took a wrong turn in a different direction, so venomously attacking Adams as irrational and inept that in the end it was Hamilton who appeared to be both. Personal resentments pushed Hamilton to unfortunate extremes, and it was often difficult to separate the personal from the political. As Hamilton himself put it, I cannot be entirely patient under charges which impeach the integrity of my public motives and conduct. I feel that I merit them in no degree, underlined, and expressions of indignation sometimes escape me in spite of every effort to suppress them. Expressions of indignation were not always the best political defense. Nor did Hamilton's argumentative flair play well in person. At least eight times, he confronted an attacker with clenched fists, at least one time literally, and came perilously close to fighting a duel. He was not alone in his outrage at public accusations, but he acted on his anger, partly the product of his personality and partly the product of his low origins, because unlike most of his peers, he had a dubious past to overcome. 
the shadow of his illegitimacy and what he himself called the groveling conditions of his youth made him hypersensitive to attacks on his reputation. During the Mercer incident, Hamilton's impulses led to near disaster. First, he sent an angry letter to Mercer and an explanatory letter to one of Mercer's enemies, David Ross, providing him with campaign fodder. Matters only got worse when Ross published Hamilton's letter in a broadside, an act that stunned Hamilton, not his intention, effectively posting Mercer as a liar. Once again, Hamilton's words had an unanticipated impact. Now, Mercer responded by declaring himself to be the victim of a cruel attack, to which Hamilton responded in kind, initiating three months of letters and conversations in which Mercer refused to acknowledge any wrongdoing and Hamilton insisted on receiving an apology or disavowal of Mercer's accusations. In January of 1793, the frustrated Mercer made a vague reference to a duel, which Hamilton indirectly dared him to repeat, which Mercer did, and Hamilton accepted what he conceived to be Mercer's invitation to duel. Mercer responded by insisting that it was Hamilton who initiated the duel, but in the many pages following this claim, he explained in great detail how his accusations had been disproved, and this is where the matter seems to have ended. So clearly, Hamilton's natural impulses sometimes helped rather than hurt his enemies. He was a man who spoke his mind for better or worse, a fact that enemies used to his disadvantage. But Hamilton's greatest successes stemmed from this same impulse. His habitual sense of urgency, his impulsive self-expression, his gift at marshalling grand campaigns, his instinctive desire to control, command, and act, all garnered him acclaim, power, and political victories again and again. They also virtually guaranteed controversy. His sense of humor was part of the same dynamic. It was a natural expression of his energies and instincts that sometimes went awry. And given the level of controversy that shadowed him throughout his public career and beyond, his attempts at humor were also dangerous vulnerabilities that could be, and usually were, used against him. Even today, they contribute to the tangle of contradictions that constitute his reputation. Yet they also remind us of something that's easily forgotten, the human experience of America's founding. With more than 200 years of history behind us, we often forget the profound uneasiness and instability of America's early years. The nation's leaders knew that their decisions could have enormous, potentially devastating consequences capable of making or breaking the new nation. Different people responded differently to this charged atmosphere. Some considered their every word and action in the hope of setting the proper precedent. Some became profound students of government in the hope of avoiding political errors of the past. Some simply went about their business and hoped for the best. Hamilton crafted intricate and broad-reaching master plans and attempted to implement them. His bad jokes and extreme reactions are a reminder of the excitement and anxiety of that moment. They reveal a very human founder caught up in the boundless possibilities of America's founding years. Thank you. Well, a vivid presentation of a, of a vivid figure, uh, uh, jumping the gun because the two discussions have to uh, come up. I'd be interested uh, to know at some point whether you think there's a distinction between humor and wit. My American Heritage Dictionary suggests that humor typically has a good-natured quality to it, whereas wit can be more cutting and sharper, and I wonder if you aren't finding wit there. I'm not going to answer that question. <laughs> <laughs>
I've had the great pleasure of hearing Joanne Freeman talk about Alexander Hamilton twice, counting today. And I, I am once again impressed by what's so distinct about her, about her presentation. She, needs to, she seems to know this man with a startling intimacy, rather like a family member. I mean, there's appreciation, there's even a level of affection, uh, but she sure does understand the man's foibles. And, and part of her humor at him is to see him, oh, God, there he goes again. You know, there are patterns in his conduct which he very well understands. In fact, from a part of the paper that she cut out for her oral presentation, she demonstrated that she had many of the founders down pat. John Adams tended to grumble privately but be silent publicly unless, of course, I would add, he was provoked beyond endurance, which did happen. Jefferson generally preferred to have others, particularly Madison, carry on his political fights. And I would add sometimes when he did uh, carry on attacks on himself and was confronted or asked about that, as when he attacked Madison, uh, Washington, was not beyond denying that he had done what he did. Uh, George Washington who as a military and political leader, of course, had the capacity for making decisions, also was very given to agonizing. Indeed, in the past few weeks, I've been going through his detailed agonizing over several months as to whether he would go to the Constitutional Convention. But she could put Hamilton against these people. Hamilton was outspoken, or even the talkative Adams might well have remained silent. He was forthright where Jefferson was evasive, and he acted before agonizing enough. I think, uh, but as a, a professional historian, uh, Joanne Freeman isn't guilty of a false familiarity with Mr. Hamilton. She understands very well that he was part of a different world, a different culture than ours, and she gives a very good example of that when she refers to the often alien nature of 18th century humor. I think sometimes 18th century humor was literally alien because it was imported, uh, and imported in ways that needs to be explained to us. Of course, we can read Franklin's essays, for example, and see that they are uh, witty, humorous. <laughs> I don't know, I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna deal with these semantic distinctions, but we can appreciate the humor in them. And we know, of course, that he evolved his, his particular form of humor in part by imitating Addison's and Steele's The Spectator as a young man. And in another passage of this paper, which I know why she left it out, uh, <laughs> Hamilton was, uh, was very, very comic in picking up an allusion from Tristram Shandy. But I think, actually, Hamilton's humor probably needs more translation than that of other people in the 18th century. Joanne knows when he was joking. Others at the time were clearly not so sure about that. His goading Jefferson by praising Caesar had some similarities with his joking about bribery in a society that was obsessed with corruption. And for a Secretary of the Treasury to joke about it, given the role of the British Treasury in influencing, quote-unquote, Parliament, well, that was even worse. It was like joking in, about bombs in an airport today. And, and as in that instance, you can get into very serious trouble, and, and, and he did. Uh, as we used to say, it ain't funny, McGee. 
What I want to do with the balance of my comment here is to pick up on another theme in this paper, which I think makes a very important contribution to the issues that we're considering here. That is, what was Hamilton's distinction? What was his distinctive contribution within the, the founders? What was it that he gave to this fellowship that was uniquely important uh, to the founding of the republic? Hamilton, she says, uh, was committed to the process of governance, to administering. Uh, I hope it's not going too far, and you do, well, uh, forgive me a colloquialism, to say he was, in a sense, a, what we sometimes call a policy wonk, uh, with a particular interest, of course, in economic policy. He understood national macroeconomics, in a sense that is sometimes absolutely overwhelming, and he understood it in a way that demanded an activist state. To those who thought that government was best that governed least, he was, of course, anathema. But we who live in a world where governments govern and where policy is not only a legitimate uh, consideration but a subject of academic study in places like the Woodrow Wilson School, we, I think, can appreciate his contributions. And at times, Alexander Hamilton was dazzling. Never more so, I think, than in April 1781 when he wrote an unsolicited letter to Robert Morris, who had been appointed the Confederation's Superintendent of Finance. In this letter, Hamilton laid down what he thought had to be done to take in hand the finances of the United States. He calculated how much money the Confederation needed to win the Revolutionary War, which he thought it could easily win because he had some calculations with regard to Britain. How much money did we need? It was within reach. What did we need? How much could we get by taxes? How much could actually be gotten from, from, uh, from, from, from the country in that way? And then he noticed there was a deficiency of six to seven million dollars. Well, that was going to have to be borrowed. How much could we get from foreign countries? Well, he thought maybe four to four and a half million dollars. I don't know. Maybe you know how he calculated these. I don't know if I ever knew it. My sense is that they're kind of back of the envelope numbers. Uh, but it became clear this wasn't going to be enough. Clearly, credit was going to be critical to winning the revolution. Of course, we now know that most states of the early modern period, and I guess and on into today, uh, finance wars by loans. Well, he said foreign loans weren't going to do it. We need internal loans, but we can't raise uh, any loans internally unless we have a national bank. Then he outlined what the national bank should look like with a series of articles. And to my superficial eye anyway, his plan, looks, his plan looks an awful lot like the Federal Reserve System, which finally did solve the problem of, of monetary stability in the United States. He had a governing board with both private and public appointees. He had three regional banks. I mean, it was a, a brilliant plan, sort of off the top of his head, knocking it off. And this is what I think should be done. Moreover, at a time when many prominent American leaders, including, I believe, James Madison, uh, considered paper money nothing but a fraud, Hamilton 
condemned efforts to get rid of all paper money as absurd. There wasn't enough specie in the country to meet its needs as a circulating medium, he said. Abolishing paper money would mean that a substantial part of trade would have to be carried on by barter, a mode, he said, inconvenient, partial, confined, destructive of both commerce and industry. The health of a commercial country depended quote, on a due quantity and regular circulation of cash, as much as the health of an animal body depends upon the due quantity and regular circulation of blood. The letter was simply a tour de force. Hamilton was 26 years old. And I think in economics, largely self-taught, I don't believe he could have learned what he knew at King's College, Columbia. (laughs) His performance as Washington Secretary of the Treasury is more familiar. Uh, I have to confess, I I never found his financial reports all that interesting. I mean, they're very long. Uh, They do demonstrate that he, he understood that a developing country could not be simply agriculture, that it needed a manufacturing uh, sector as well as a commercial and a commercial sector. And he still understood, maybe more profoundly, the utility of a national bank. Economists today, I'm told, emphasize the importance of institutions such as banks and corporations to economic development, and they give very high marks to Alexander Hamilton. In truth, however, many of these policies uh, had precedence in the actions of the state legislatures, uh, the too often despised actions of state legislatures during the 1780s. They pioneered in granting patents and creating corporations, including incorporated banks, and sometimes gave direct encouragement to manufacturers. They, too, understood that machines and corporations could compensate for the two great problems of a developing economy in the United States, the high cost of labor and the darth of capital. On the other hand, Hamilton's assumption of state debts into a national debt on which the interest due could be paid from import duties was a brilliant policy, one that served to stabilize stabilize the republics in ways that we only now understand. In short, he undercut the need for those oppressive direct state taxes on polls and real estate that had caused widespread unpopular unrest in the 1780s, an unrest which culminated in Massachusetts with Shays Rebellion, but was by no means confined to Massachusetts. Up to 90% of those state taxes, it seems, were used to reduce state debts. And so, with assumption, those regressive state taxes were no longer needed, and the state tax burden declined dramatically, and so did the popular unrest. Hamilton's grasp of how to manage the American economy makes me think that he was in in a category with uh, Benjamin Franklin, who most people consider a natural genius. But I don't really like that, that, those kinds of categories. In fact, my impulse is more like that of, of John Adams. I love the story of John Adams, who confessed in 1822 a very great secret to a younger American. As far as I am capable of comparing the merit of different <coughs> periods, he said, 
I have no reason to believe we were better than you are. In fact, he said there was actually a scarcity of talent in the revolutionary period, which allowed able men to realize their ambitions more easily. Four years later, Adams wrote uh, an old political colleague that he could see a succession of able and honorable characters in the United States, from members of Congress down to students in our universities, who will take care of the liberties which you have cherished and done so much to support. John Adams's affirmation of the capacities of future generations is, I think, of enduring significance because we are among them. So are his comments on his own generation. To no small extent, the times made the founders what they became as much as they made the times. In ordinary times, Jefferson and Washington would have been obscure planters uh, with a bent toward scientific agriculture. Uh, and, and in Jefferson's case, a love of reading. Uh, Adams would have been a provincial lawyer. However, Franklin's work in science won him an international reputation even before independence, so he's of a different order. But what about Hamilton? Would his talents, his extraordinary, sometimes dazzling talents, have gone unnoticed? A policy guy needs a government to administer. For him, the colonial world offered few opportunities to practice his skills. He was, as Freeman says, a brilliant administrator with a vision for the future, lucky enough to be living in a newborn republic lacking shape and precedent. And one has to say that newborn republic needing shape and precedent was even luckier to have him. He left his mark on the Republic, whose survival he doubted by making sure that it would survive. Thank you. Some of you who um know me, know that I really am a Jeffersonian, despite having once written an essay on Hamilton's sober second thoughts for a volume that Barbara Oberg and Jerome Benatar um, edited some years ago. Uh, but I will not speak from my, my position as a Jeffersonian. Uh, Hamilton can be evaluated on his own merits. Um, and so I will admit by way of beginning, just as Joanne predicted, I was extremely skeptical when I received the title of her paper. <laughs> Hamilton's sense of humor, surely this was a joke, I said to myself. <laughs> and so I immediately went online to find out whether John Kaminsky and his crew had quietly published the wit and wisdom of Alexander Hamilton at some <laughs> moment when I wasn't actually watching uh, the productions of his uh, little fertile establishment out there in Wisconsin. <laughs> And it turned out then that Joanne Freeman wasn't fooling and that, at least as I read her paper, she thinks we ought to give Hamilton uh, a good deal of credit for being one of the wittier founding fathers, uh, even though I think she doesn't go overboard as some might have been inclined, I suppose, presented with this challenge and making Hamilton into the David Letterman of his day. <laughs> um, 
I'm still, though, a bit puzzled because it seems to me that the evidence that Joanna deduces in her excellent paper is not exactly overwhelming in its quality, and I refer both to the entire paper. Um, some of the evidence that I'll mention comes from that and the, the portions which you were lucky enough to hear this afternoon. Um, there's that unfortunate and apparently quite off-the-cuff remark to Representative John Francis Mercer, the kind of unguarded witticism Hamilton would apparently have done better not to make. And then there's his egging on of Governor Morris, a genuinely witty founding father, and I can say that because some confidence, because there are two biographers of Morris in the room this afternoon, who I suspect will support my evaluation, is egging on of Governor Morris and encouragement to Morris to give Washington a too familiar pat on the back. And then finally, in a bit that she was not uh, able to present in her, uh, uh, the spoken version of her paper, there is an ever so slightly off-color remark to John Lawrence during the Revolution that dates from Hal Hamilton's callow youth. And I think not really too much more than that, although we're given the impression that there may be some examples that aren't cited here. And I'm not sure that that's an awful lot to go on. Of course, Freeman is right to suggest that we may not always be able to recognize or appreciate 18th century humor when we see it. And here I echo Pauline Mayer, who also uh, thinks that we may need to know a little bit more about what people genuinely thought was funny in the 18th century. Franklin's name has been mentioned at several points in this context, and Franklin's sense of humor may be more accessible to us than other kinds of humor that were in circulation. I think we're more used, in effect, to the visual sorts of humor and satirical prints and so on and so forth, which in some ways are easier for us to read than, than the verbal kinds of humor that get re reproduced in letters and comments and whatnot, and often depend an awful lot on context that's very hard to recover. So there may, in fact, be this enormous vein of 18th century humor that's just sort of passing us by um, because we don't really yet know how to decode it. It's sort of like being pre-Balin in one's appreciation for revolutionary rhetoric. It was all there. I mean, the words haven't changed, but nobody actually knew what they meant until uh, all of a sudden in graduate school you got to read ideological origins. Um, okay. So there is a problem with appreciating what's being said often enough. And to return to the callow comment from Hamilton's callow youth to John Lawrence, which is in effect a reference to Tristram Shandy and uh, the famous passage on noses, which has this heavily <clears throat> semi-pornographic, I guess one could say, uh, content. Um, yeah, I mean, this is the kind of thing two 20-year-old guys are going to say to each other in their correspondence, I suppose. But if you really want to see Tristram Shandy and the passage on noses being used, you have to go to Jefferson's correspondence. And this then begins to get interesting, because it's not just Hamilton who's citing this. This apparently is one of those big moments in 18th century witty literary humor that gets recycled constantly. And Jefferson does an enormous amount with this passage in one of his letters to Mariah Causeway uh, in the 1780s. And uh, all Jeffersonians, of course, remember this episode uh, reasonably well. But the notion that Jefferson and Hamilton are both appealing to the same body of humor suggests that there may be all sorts of things going on here, again, that we aren't really as adept at noticing as, as we might be. And so I would really like Joanne to do a little bit more with what made people laugh in the 18th century. You know, is, is this 
something that we can actually recover in any real sense, or is it something we're going to have to just uh, guess about? And I think the kind of digging that we know Joanne is capable of, because she certainly has done it in explicating the duel, could also be used to good effect to explicate what exactly humor among politicians was and its effects and causes and so on and so forth. Uh, let me say that, that I basically agree with the analysis of Hamilton's character that Joanne presents in her paper, but I'd like her to take a little farther, and I'd, I'd also like her to do something that I think she's reluctant to do, at least I've noticed this in some of her work, and that is to theorize just a little bit more. Um, there are a lot of theories about humor and its purpose and its uses and so on, some of which go as far back as Sigmund Freud and um, you know, uh, the joke and its uh, relation to the unconscious. Uh, for many analysts, um, and I say that generally both in the psychodynamic sense, humor is a form of aggression. And if humor really is a form of aggression, then this is exactly the kind of weapon we would expect somebody who is as aggressive and hostile and full of unresolved problems of one sort or another uh, as Hamilton was, something we'd expect someone like that to be using. Now, I don't want to engage in my own form of pop psychoanalysis, but I think that a character like Hamilton really calls out for some kind of a dynamic explanation uh, on a level that goes beyond the narrative. There, there are things going on here that um, we want to know more about from our 21st century point of view. And I think, as Joanne is beginning to make us understand, uh, humor may be Hamilton's use of humor and the kind of humor that Hamilton found um, uh, appealing to himself may be one of the ways we can get at some of the deeper roots of Hamilton's character. Unless this seem simply to ask for a kind of, uh, you know, what made Alexander Hamilton tick as opposed to what made Alexander Hamilton an important early American leader, let me say also that, that if we could understand better, as Joanne is suggesting we need to, how humor is used among political elites and the role of humor in facilitating either conflict or uh, 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 cooperation, um, the way in which a shared body of references and material that you can joke about is important in creating bonds among politicians at various points. The way in which these kinds of references, in addition to the more familiar Balinesque uh, kinds of references about country party thought and so on, help to create a generation of politicians who can talk to each other, and unless they can talk to each other, uh, leadership isn't going to amount to much. If, if we could begin to, to explore further with Joanne how some of these things work, I think we'd have a much more interesting understanding of what this generation of early leaders uh, was about. I think in, in some ways we've probably reached the end, end of the line with pressing more out of what the traditional forms of ideological analysis are. I don't know that there is much more to be discovered than we have already over the last 30, 35 years on that score. But there may be other aspects of their common behaviors um, that are worth studying. And so without more, I will simply thank Joanne for making me think a lot about things I hadn't thought much about and about ways in which we could understand this remarkable group of men maybe a little better. keeps being engaging, doesn't it? The, um, and this remarkable group of men will set the stage for the final session. Uh, 
Do you have any comments across the way before? Yeah, just a couple, yeah. a couple quick comments. Um, first of all, you asked the first question, um, wit versus humor. Um, anticipating that you were going to ask me about that, I checked. Um, I looked, actually, for the 18th century understanding of wit and humor. They didn't necessarily draw a sharp dividing line. Um, if they had to, they would say that wit is more intellectual than humor. I don't think that they necessarily were drawing a distinction between um, good-natured versus right. malicious. Um, but the, the line isn't really clear, sure. I think, at that, at that point. Um, but it's estimating the phenomenon isn't there. No, it's true. But, but it, well, actually, as suggested by a lot of these comments, um, one is always sort of struggling between your insight and your viewpoint here in the 20th century and then the right. getting into the head of the person who's in a very different place in time. Um, along those lines, I, of course, agree um, with both uh, Herb and Pauline that, um, yes, the humor is... Um, very alien in that time period. Um, it's hard to argue with the charge that Pauline made that I know Hamilton too well. <laughs> I can't refute that. Um, <laughs> but um, I, I can say that um, certainly I didn't mean to suggest uh, in the paper that um, he was anything close to the, the David Letterman of the founding. I didn't even necessarily mean to suggest that he has a good sense of humor. Um, <laughs> I just really am showing... Um, in a sense, that he had one, um, really trying to show, use that as a way into um, something about Hamilton as a leader, trying to get at him as a leader in a, an unconventional, obviously unconventional, um, kind of a way. Um, I, guess, I guess I'll stop there and, and uh, allow questions. The floor is open. You've had one already, so let me... Yeah. <laughs> Well, certainly I would, I would agree. Um, <laughs> Hamilton was not the guy to ever make anybody feel comfortable. Um, I would say in a sense, I mean, certainly I, I also agree that there's an um, antagonistic um, sort of element in what he's saying, but I would also say, in a way, even more than that, um, he's the sort of person in whatever venue he's in, he wants to be the best. He's a sort of habitual grandstander. And part of what he's doing here, I think this is another form of self-promotion. He's sort of trying to put himself ahead by either saying the unexpected, the provocative, the, the witty, although he's not necessarily succeeding at being witty. But, um, you know, there are stories about him um, entering parties and obviously sort of attempting to take command of the room, you know, scoping the horizon, sort of planning a strategy for conquering the room. Um, I think that's just his habitual mode of thought is, you know, see and conquer. And so I think that in that way, there is an aggressive um, element in uh, what he's trying to do with humor.
Um, I think frustrated is a good <laughs> word for what Hamilton would have been. Um, already he was, he was sort of banging his head against the wall and, and writing um, what ultimately were not very good uh, newspaper attacks on the Jefferson administration. It was almost as though he was too overwhelmed with all of the hostility and anger at which, what he thought was just the profoundly wrong way to go. Um, I think, too, I think he thought, um, because he suggests this before the duel and in a way he suggests it in some of the thing, correspondence that he left um, when he was preparing for the duel, he really did think that this whole Republican experiment ultimately was just not going to work. And at various points throughout his career, um, he basically says, you know, okay, I'm willing to give it a try. We have to give it a try. If we don't give it a try, people are going to always be angry that it, we didn't. So fine. But ultimately, it's going to collapse. And on a certain level, he thought at some point there was going to be a civil war, some kind of a war. And as far as the duel is concerned, part of the reason why he fights that is he says to be in future useful, and he's partly thinking, you know, in a military atmosphere, I, of course, have to defend my reputation, to be able to lead men. Um, so he would say that's what he um, was expecting, was, was some kind of conflict. Um, but he also, um, there, a contemporary of his suggests that Hamilton was thinking about writing a grand work of political theory along the lines of the sort of team-written Federalist papers, and he had begun talking to people and asking them to take different topics to write essays on them. So um, it's possible he might have backed away from what was supremely frustrating and maybe just sort of attempted to, in a way, become a, a commentator and on a broader level about American governance. If, I think I'm going to take advantage of the pause because I think there are questions that people have in their mind that are that also relate to this remarkable group of people. And let's move the next, the next team up, uh, the three summary commentators.